Well, what's up, Coastline Church? Man, I'm really beginning to love you guys. In fact, I've kind of just felt a connection to you guys from the moment we got here. And I'm telling you, I just love this church. Uh, the most remarkable thing is uh, my team and I have all said we just felt so at home. I mean, we just felt so at home, and I hope you take that as a compliment. And I've been feeling so at home in Southern California, in fact, that I even wore my California socks. Um, I hope you, is that okay? My team is going to be so embarrassed, but check this out. I got some, got some happy socks going on. Just makes me feel so good. I feel so at home in California with my happy socks, so... Just glad to be here. I do, I do love your pastor and this team. And he told me last night, he said, you know, you don't have to say that stuff. And I don't have to. I want to. This is a great, great staff and team. And this dream team is amazing. I hope you guys know how special your church really is. I really do hope you do know that. It's a special place. And yeah, yeah, you give it up for your church. And, uh, and I just want to tell you, as I've seen a lot of churches doing what I do, and, and this place is, is uh, they're, we're in, you're, you're in a beginning season of something really great and really special, and you're beginning to invest in other churches in a powerful way that you may not even know about, but I want you to know that your faithfulness and giving and attending and serving is going to begin to make a difference in your community and, and way beyond in ways that I can't even fully describe to you. So, And then I want to tell you, too, if you haven't heard about Life Ministry yet, like you did today, if it's not something that's been on your mind, you're going to be hearing a lot about it, and you need to just go ahead and, account, and, and plan on just joining a life group. Talk to some of these people who are smiling like they're crazy. There's not something wrong with them. They have had a powerful encounter with the Lord, and they will tell you all about it. Uh, my name is Rick Dykes. I'm the life pastor, so I'm very partial to this ministry. Not just partial because I lead it, but because it changed my life and, uh, and had a, just a crazy ch- change in my life that brought me from the place where I was raised in South Mississippi, tiny small town. I mean, my entire small town could just about meet in this room. If you could get them all there at the same time, it's very challenging to get people in a space like this when they all ride in wagons. You have no idea what that's like. It's hard. I mean, it's really logistically challenging, but they would, they would fit in a very small place. So I came from that small town, and God took me to Birmingham, and, uh, and he's just been changing my life ever since, and it began with with life mystery. But just a little bit about my backstory. Growing up in South Mississippi, I grew up in church, you know, and I don't know how much, that's a, that's a lot of people's story in the South, and probably many of you relate to that. And, uh, and I actually had two very different church experiences, you know. I had two sets of grandparents who went to very different churches, and, and, uh, and, and neither, both sets of grandparents said the other was wrong, you know. And it was, it was so confusing. And, um, and, you know, one, one said that, you know, pews are for sitting in, and you never swing from a chandelier. And the other, I didn't even know they were pews. I thought they were hurdles. I thought that's what they were there for. You jump them. And, and so it was all confusing, you know. To have such different perspectives on what church should look like, but <laughs> as a as a former church kid, now that I'm an adult, one of my favorite things to do is um is laugh at church people. You know, I like I think I think we're a little bit crazy. We ought to laugh at ourselves. And if you're too uptight to do that, quit. You know, stop being so uptight. Laugh at yourself. If you're a church person, you got a little you got a little funny stuff in you. You got to be able to laugh at that. And one of my first things, one of my my favorite things to do now is to look at church signs. It's almost become a hobby, you know, to to find out some of the awful things people put on their church signs, you know. So um, I, I think we ought to just take a minute and just laugh at ourselves. I think it's a great place to start. And by the way, if you're not a church person, you're just checking it out. It's okay, laugh at us. We're we're very ridiculous sometimes. So, <laughs> so you jump right in. I want to make sure that you feel comfortable too. Check this one out. Bring your sin to the altar and drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. 
which is a very relevant, you know, it's, so they're trying to reach a certain community there, and it works, I think. <laughs> How about this one? Forgive your enemies. It messes with their heads. <laughs> I don't think that's what Jesus meant, but you know, it's true. If you ever forgive somebody and they're not expecting it, it's like, anyway, messes with their heads. A little punctuation might help here. Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Check this out. Do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. <laughs> oh, man, I hope he's on vacation that week, you know? The worst part is somebody on his staff put that on the sign, you know? I think you should free that guy. Let him move on to his next calling. Bless him. Whoever stole our AC units, keep one. It's hot where you're going. <laughs> That's why you don't make the church sign guy mad. You become his friend. It is hot where you're going, buddy. Check this out. This is a little bit hard to see, but it's very funny. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that is a chicken walking in front of a KFC. That's bold, man. That's crazy. But that's the picture David was trying to paint when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, I believe. That's what he was trying to show us. Fear no evil. I love this one. I think this is how we should feel when we go to church. Church is tomorrow. Doesn't he make you happy? I mean, look at that kid. And then a little local humor. Check this out. I think we have one more. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Don't the Clippers need a little healing? We are interceding hard for the Clippers. I just want you to know that. I'm so sorry. I hope I didn't lose you all. The church people have to be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit. You know, I mean, we do some crazy things. We laugh at stuff like that because we, you know, it's funny. And so... Um, but, you know, there's, there's something I've learned about church people is that, that there's a life out there for us that when we do some crazy things like this, it's, in a lot of ways, it's evidence that we're missing something. And uh, so I titled this message, The Life Unlived. And, and I hope that that stirs you a little bit. I hope that it piques your interest a little bit because there genuinely is a life that God has called us to that many of us aren't living. And here's what Jesus said that church people should look like. So we know what church people look like. Sometimes they're just mean. You know, you guys know some mean people in the church? If you don't know them, it's you, okay? So I'm just trying to help you. If you're wondering, where are the mean people? It's, all right, just you. I'm trying to help. But Jesus made a very simple statement that when I first got saved became one of my favorite statements. It's uh, from John 10, chapter, John chapter 10, verse 10. It's, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What a very simple line. And when I first got saved... That was one of the first verses that I committed to memory, in part because it's very short and very easy. And otherwise, it's very powerful. It's that, oh, that's why I got saved. I'm going to get that. What I discovered is over a few years, as time began to drag on, it was like, well, that's what he said. I memorized the verse. I did what I was supposed to do. And it's not necessarily coming. And I think for many of us here, many of you would relate that, man, I, I know that verse. I've heard it before. I've been a believer for a while, but I'm not living that life. And I think that it is a life that is unlived, but is really ultimately meant for every single one of us who are in Christ. And there's actually, the more I've studied this, so I went back and said, why am I not living it? Is there more to it? It's a very simple line. I began to study it, and I discovered that in this very short verse, there are three Greek words. 
which little little irony here, I studied Greek in college, um, which is crazy because I went to the University of Southern Mississippi, which is a real college. You have to trust me on that. You know, you know you're legit when you're known for Brett Favre and Jimmy Buffett. I mean, and that's about it, but that we, that's true. And so I, I majored actually in public speaking, which is crazy because they were teaching me to speak English in South Mississippi. And then I just went all out and said, just teach me Greek while we're at it. Because it seems like it would be about the same. You know, you're going to teach me English. You might as well go Greek in South Mississippi. I found these three words um, that are very powerful in this very short passage. It's the word echo, and I'm not going to go too deep with the Greek here. I just want to give you a picture of what this verse really means. It's the word echo that we translate as have, zoe, which we translate as life, and then there's the word periosos, which means abundantly. And what's interesting about these three words is that they have much, much broader meanings than just have life abundantly. And so I began to study it, and I found where a Greek scholar had taken and said, if we wrote John 10.10 as it was originally intended, and we expanded the definition, it would sound something like this. And I want you to listen and think, is this what my life looks like? What Jesus was really saying is, but I have come that they might have, keep, and constantly retain a vitality, gusto, vigor, and zest for living that springs up from deep down inside. I came that they might embrace this unrivaled, unequaled, matchless, incomparable, richly loaded, and overflowing life to the ultimate maximum. Jesus was saying a lot more than have life abundantly. He was giving us a picture of what it was really supposed to be like. And I would ask the question, how many of your lives actually look like that? How many of our lives look like that? How many of you just don't like people whose lives look like that? You know, I mean, that's fair. I understand where you're coming from. First time I saw people like this, I thought, what in the world is wrong with those people? You can't be that happy and go to church. They must be doing it wrong, you know? (laughs) Figured I might help them a little bit, explain it to them. You need to quit that, stop smiling, sit down, stand up when you're supposed to. Figured I would teach them a little church. But I saw it, and I thought, you know, why doesn't my life look like that? What's missing? Where's the disconnect? And it's been a point of of study for me, something that I've I've made important in my life. I want to know why church people don't have that bothers me. It's what keeps me up at night. It's the thing that drives me. And I'm telling you, it's very powerful if you begin to understand what's holding you back. And I think there are two simple things. I'm going to spend time on the second one, but I want to make the first one very clear. I think that many of us have an eternity-only perspective of our relationship with Jesus. And let me be very clear. Jesus did come so that you could have eternal life. I'm not discounting that at all. But your life with Jesus is about more than just heaven. It is about earth. There is something that he has for you here that is meant to be greater. And it's so much more than what I call the fire insurance gospel. You know what the fire insurance gospel is? It's somebody told you one time that hell is hot and you don't want to go there. So sign up with Jesus. And I'm saying that's fine in a sense, but it's, but it's incomplete. And if you're like me, man, I grew up in church where I had a Sunday school teacher. I don't know if you had this experience, but I had a Sunday school teacher, man, that was mean. It's like, I don't even think she liked kids. Why are you doing this? You know, go back through Discover Course, find out what, maybe you missed something. But she was mean and she would talk about hell all the time. Like she talked about hell like she was born and raised in hell. She's like hell Wikipedia page, man. I feel like I'm getting the history of hell, you know. She was way before her time. She was a visionary. It was before Wikipedia. But she, she talked about hell all the time, and she would say, you know, she said, hell is hot, don't you want to go to heaven? So I don't know, are you going to be there? So I'm not sure. I'm still seeking, leave me alone, you know. But I made that decision, and, and, and I decided that for my fire insurance gospel, I would accept Jesus, but that's incomplete, you know. 
and, and that's why I wasn't living the abundant life. And so that's the first reason. I, and I think secondly, I think we have to understand that everything that Jesus wants for us, we have an enemy who will oppose it. And I believe he wants us to be out of it as much as Jesus wants it sometimes. I mean, Jesus wants it more, but he's doing more to stop us than we're doing to get the life that Jesus had for us because he's active at it every day. In fact, the first part of John 10.10, 10, the first half of that, that, that scripture is, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come. Jesus gives us his job description. What a bad job description, man. Anybody want that? Like, no, nah, you don't want that. But that's what Satan does every day. And I, I looked in, I said, you know, what does Jesus say? Like, does he give us some statements? Does he give us an understanding about what it is that might be missing? And he makes a couple of statements that I think are pretty powerful. Very simple, but very powerful. He says in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the zoe. The life that is abundant. Same word. Jesus says, it's me. And all that simply means is that nothing you can do can get you there. Just come to me. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes into a relationship unless he comes through me. I'm the Zoe. And then at one point he's questioned and he says, uh, and they say, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in just a couple of moments, just a couple of just words out of Jesus' mouth, he makes it very clear that relationship with him is key. A love for your Father, love for God, and a love for people. And I think if you look around the church, you find that those three things are missing. So the abundant life is missing, and interestingly enough, those three things don't show up all that often. And here's the reason why. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus says, relationship with me, love God, and love people. But the problem is that Satan is opposing that. And I'm just telling you, if you think I'm a little crazy here, you need to just step out and just know that he is opposing you. The Bible says, don't be unaware of his schemes. It says that he's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for somebody to take out. It's literally his job, the Bible says, to be the accuser of the brethren. So here's what we need to do. If Jesus says that relationship, loving God, and loving people are key, I think a great principle of Bible study. Anytime you see that Jesus is saying this is what needs to happen, go and look and see what the Bible tells us the enemy is doing because the Bible's not going to let us be unaware. The Bible will show us his schemes. And so I titled this part of the message, Tools of the Trade. You know, what is Satan doing to hold us back? What are the tools he's using? And so I think the first one he brought to oppose that relationship part that Jesus said. And I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. And if you're not taking notes, you go ahead and write this down too. The word, the word is religion. Religion is a distraction from relationship. It's counterfeit. It's fake. It will not take you to where Jesus was saying he wanted to take you. Religion is what every other world faith says. No other world religion says, hey, I'm the Savior. I'm going to give everything so that through relationship with me, you can have it all. Religion says you've got to figure some things out first. It's counterfeit. So another little principle of Bible study, so go see what the enemy's doing, and then a, a good principle of Bible study is what they call the law of first mention. Look for where it's mentioned earliest in the Bible. So I began to study this, and I found it in Genesis chapter 3, which means it immediately follows creation story. So I think it's key. I think it's important. In Genesis 3, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. That's obviously referencing Satan. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any trees in the garden? 
Of course we may eat from the fruit in the tree of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the middle, from the tree in the middle that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent says. Matter of fact, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. God knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be godly. See, Satan brought a little perversion to what God had created. God had created the perfect system of relationship where they could walk. And the Bible talks about they walked in the cool of the morning, man. What would it be like to have that kind of relationship with God? That's the life Jesus was talking about, the abundant life. And Satan comes in and says, yeah, but he didn't say you can't eat from the trees, right? Oh, well, here's why. And I know you want to be godly. So he appealed to Eve's religious side. Not to her. And what's so interesting about this is it's subtle. He didn't come to Eve and say, hey, Eve, go sin. He said, hey, Eve, go get godly. Go get religious. And she fell for it. Because religion is counterfeit to Jesus. And I love the old saying. I think it's so true. If the devil can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. And I would add to that, he'll make you religious. He'll get you so bogged down trying to figure out what to do and not to do so that you can be good and not bad that you forget to just have relationship with Jesus because Jesus says, I'm the way. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Nobody gets it right. Nobody does it through religion. Nobody has this figured out but me. So let me, take, let me make it easy for you. I'll take all the sin of the world. I'll die. I'll come back. And then you just follow me. And Satan says, but did Jesus really say? And he perverts it and he brings religion. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. The second thing that I think the enemy is doing to oppose those things that Jesus said, Jesus said relationship, and then he said love for God. The second blank there is shame. Satan wants to hold us back with shame. And shame actually comes to us through our own bad choices. Man, you know you've made some bad choices. I've made some bad choices. We've all made bad choices because all God's people got issues. I love your church's slogan, there are no, such th- there are no perfect people allowed. And I'm just telling you, that's like, if you think you're perfect, I'm going to give you a tip. Nobody likes you. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm just here to help you, you know. I mean, that's why I'm here all the way from Alabama to bring you revelations like that, you know. But here's what's interesting about shame is it's, it's meant to not just make us feel dirty. It's made to keep us from connecting to God. Check it out. Genesis 3, verse 7. At the moment their eyes were open, he said their eyes would be open, and they were. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Shame, the problem with it is it's an attack on who we are, not what we've done. It's not, hey, you made a mistake, because we've all made a mistake. Shame says you are that mistake. Shame says you are that mistake. It's always condemning. It never has hope. It never offers a way out. It says you are not worthy. You go and hide from the Lord. You can't have that relationship. You better fix yourself. They hid because they realized they were naked. I have a 13-month-old son, and some of you already know where I'm going with this. Just a few days ago, right before we left home, he, um, after taking a bath, he broke free, and he's just begun to walk, and so we're still figuring this whole thing out. But he broke free with his towel on his head, draped behind him like a cape, and like the naked superhero that he thought he was, he came running through the house, buck naked, smiling like, I mean, he was so happy. And the reason is, is that he did it in complete innocence. You know, he had no idea that he was naked. You know why? Because I wasn't going to tell him. I don't see his nakedness. What I see is innocence. I'm his dad. I think he's cute. Now, if I told you I did it, it's a whole different story, you know? (laughs) It's embarrassing then, you know, because I know better, right? 
Nobody wants to see that. I'm sorry that that image is in your head. Please <laughs> delete. But he, he's innocent. And so when, when the Bible says that they were naked and they were afraid, God doesn't say, yes, you are naked. How did you get naked? They were naked all along. What God says is, who told you that? Who stole my son's innocence? And his heart breaks the same way that my heart would break if somebody made Charlie feel shame for what he did. And I will fight you for that. And God is fighting the enemy on our behalf because he even says, you are not naked. In fact, he calls you clothed in his righteousness. He says, my son is righteous and put on his clothes. If you think you're naked, clothe yourself in righteousness. That's what I see. We say, God, we were naked, so we hid. And he says, no, you're not. You're not naked. You're wearing my son's righteousness. I see it. Who told you that? Who lied to you? Who who got you to buy into that? And shame destroys our ability for intimacy with God, and and it breaks God's heart. And the third thing you need to write down that the enemy is doing to oppose you is a simple word, very powerful word, and it's rejection. <coughs> rejection actually comes to us not by our own bad decisions most of the time. It comes to us by the actions of others and the stupid things that people say, you know. And there are mean people in the world. There are just mean people out there. There are mean people in the church, you know. If you don't know any mean people, it's you, you know. You're, you're, that, you're that person. So, there are mean people in the church, and rejection is actually a, an attack on our relationship with others, and it's not hard to find in the world. Rejection is easy to find. Anybody here ever go to school? I figured so, but in Mississippi, that's a valid question. You need to, you have to know, you have to know your audience, you know, and so it's very important that I ask that, but man, you go into an elementary school or, or a middle school, and it's easy to find rejection, you know? It's easy to find rejection. Here's where it shows up in Scripture the first time. It's in Genesis 4. So there's the story of the fall, the religion, then there's shame, and then we get the story of Cain and Abel immediately after. It says, when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Because Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock, and the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he walked away looking dejected. What's interesting is that it says that that Abel was accepted and Cain didn't feel accepted. And so he walked away, and it shows us that he walked away with a sense of rejection, and the enemy began to to pervert that to such a degree that he comes back and kills his brother. He comes back and takes his brother's life. It destroyed his ability for relationship with other people because Satan wanted him to buy in to rejection. And it could even be that Abel made a comment or two. Maybe Abel didn't say anything. Maybe the enemy just planted the seed in his ear. But at the end of the day, he walked away feeling rejected. It says he walked away looking dejected. And out of that rejection, I believe he took the life of his own brother. So what do we do about this, you guys? That, that's, that's really the ultimate goal. Because if I just come and I preach to you and I tell you some neat revelation, because it was a very big revelation for me. I've been seeing get the enemy use religion and shame and rejection against people for a long time. I didn't realize just how, how, how intentional he was being and that it was the first three things that he did to oppose God's people. I didn't realize all that. It's a big revelation. But if that's all I give you, what do you walk away with? So the question you have to be asking is, if he meant for me to have an abundant life, Pastor, and I believe you, and I see what Satan's doing, what in the world can I do about it? And I believe there are two simple keys to have that life that Jesus wants for you. I think, first of all, you need to have a proper understanding of identity. Write down that word identity. It's such a powerful, powerful word. Without a proper view of who you are, change is almost impossible. 
And any kind of addiction teaches us that, by the way. Because addicts use whatever it is that they're addicted to because they believe they're addicted to it. Because that's who they think they are. And without a new identity, it's impossible to change, I believe. Ephesians 4 gives us this picture very clearly. It says, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Instead, be changed. See yourself differently, it says. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Interestingly enough, put on your new nature. Not figure out your new nature, get it right, stop doing this, start doing that. Just put it on. Understand who you really are. And I'm very passionate about this understanding of how do people change because it's what I do. It's what freedom ministry is really all about. It's what life is. It's about helping people change. And so over the years, I've studied um, what does the world say about change? And I found 25 years ago, secular psychology came up with what they call the five levels of neurological change. Five levels of renewing your mind, essentially. So the Bible's been talking about for a lot longer than 25 years. And here's what it shows us. It's very interesting. It says that these five levels, if you can change one, it changes that level. If you change the next one, it changes the level before it. If you change the next one, it changes all the levels before it. And here's what they are. This is according to the world. I'm just showing you that that the world is sort of figuring some things out. The Bible's been showing us for a long time. The first level that they would say you you need to have an understanding of in order to change would be your environment. Where, when, and with whom am I doing these things? And get out of there. If you are struggling with alcohol, leave the bar. It's very basic. It's just the baseline, you know. Second part there, the second level of change is behavior. So leave the bar and then don't take any booze home either. Stop drinking. You know, stop drinking it. And you guys all know, even as I say that, that's not going to work for very long. It'll work for a little while, but the addict will go back to it because all he's really done is left the bar and made a decision. And he needs more than his will, right? So the third level says, how do I do it? It's capabilities. That's the word, capabilities. So am I capable of doing this? And he has to begin to think that he has the ability to do it. And that'll change his behavior because he thinks he can change, you know? And that'll keep him out of the bar because he's not going back there. It's changing each level, right? The fourth level is beliefs and values. You know, why do I do it? He's got to begin to think that. And then I'm just, let me say this, by the way, your beliefs and your values aren't what you would write down if you sat down to write out your life mission statement. Beliefs and values are what do you think and how do you react when pressure is put on. When you feel the pressure, what do you do? Because that's where beliefs really show up. And I think you ought to know that just so that you can evaluate that. What are my true beliefs? So, But if I change my beliefs, then I believe I'm capable of greater things and I'll stop doing the things I need to stop and I'll stop going to places I don't need to be. But the ultimate level of change, they say, is identity. And the question that they say it should ask is, who am I? Identity. Who am I? And each level affects the one before it, and they say the ultimate level is identity, which I think is so interesting, because what I've learned is this. This is the way I like to say it. Princes don't eat crumbs from under the table. They sit with the king. Amen. Princes don't eat crumbs. They sit with the king because they know that they belong with the king. It's because I know I'm a prince. And if I wasn't a prince, I'd eat crumbs, but I'm a prince. I don't eat the crumbs. I I deserve more because because of who I am. I have, a, um, I have this 13-month-old son, and since the day he was born, I decided Charlie is going to know who he is. That's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know that Charlie would know who he was, you know. So I began from day one. Every day that I put him down in his crib, I say, Charlie, you're a champion, and your dad is proud of you. Now, Charlie hasn't done a whole lot. 
He really hasn't. He doesn't have a whole lot of accomplishments. But there's a day coming when he fails at something, and I know this day is coming. And as a dad, I'm, I'm praying that he's ready for it. I'm praying that when he doesn't win and he finds himself not a champion in his circumstances but a loser in his circumstances, that he walks off the field saying, I'm a champion because my dad's been telling me for a long time that's who I am. The fact that I lost today doesn't change who I am. And I believe in Jesus' name that Charlie is going to say that when he walks off that field. And I'm going to be the first one there to remind him, hey, son, you're a champion today. Two identities that have to be right for you to have this change that God wants in you. First of all, you have to have a right view of you. Man, you need to know who you are in Christ. And if you don't know that, because here's the thing, the Bible is trying to tell you, just go to the Word. So I did a little study, and uh, I know you can't see this really clearly, but this whole page is statements out of Scripture about who you are and what God has said about you. And I just want you to hear some of this. The Bible says, I am God's possession. I'm his child. I'm his workmanship. I am his friend. I'm his temple. I'm his ambassador. I am his minister or instrument of the gospel. I am chosen, the Bible says. I am beloved. I'm a precious jewel. I am his, I am his heritage. The Bible says this about you. It says it about me. I have been redeemed by the blood, set free from sin, set free from Satan's control, set free from Satan's kingdom, washed by the blood of the land, given a sound mind, given the Holy Spirit, adopted into God's family. I have been given the ministry of reconciliation, given great and precious promises. I have been given access to God. I have been given wisdom. I am complete in him. I am forever free from sin's power. I am sanctified. I am loved eternally. I am not condemned. I am one with the Lord. I am on my way to heaven. I am quickened by his mighty power, seated in heavenly places. And if you don't know that that's who you are, you buy the lie that you're not worthy. And it's simple to find this out. The Bible has it. Go study this. Like, find out who you are. Just know. You have to know who you are. You have to just begin to reach out and say, God, who are you saying that I am? A right view of you. And secondly, you have to have a right view of him. What you believe about the artist determines what you believe about the artwork. That's a, that would preach right there. You take that home and think on that. If you don't think he's good, there's no way you can think you're good. And I just want you to hear that your papa loves you. He's not mad at you. And I believe that some of us came in today believing that God is mad at us, and he's not, man. Let me fix this for you. He is not mad. He is madly in love with you. I'm telling you that because I know him, because I've had a revelation of how much he loves me. And it's what John understood at the end of his life. He, John, John went from a son of thunder man to one who said, God loved me. Gee, I'm the one Jesus loved, man. He wasn't saying that Jesus didn't love the rest of them. He just knew that he was loved. He loves you. He desires that. And you don't have to get right to him, to come to him. You have to fix it. Come to him. He'll help you get right. I like to say it this way. He is so in love with you, man, that if he had a refrigerator in heaven, your picture would be on it. And what an epic refrigerator that would be, you know. It would be always, it would just be glorious. And you need to understand that your Savior, Jesus, is not some weak, gaunt, little dying man who didn't have it, you know, he's not that guy that media shows us. My Jesus is a mighty warrior. My Jesus is changing the world. My Jesus is coming back on a horse. That's the Jesus that I know. Hebrews 1 gives us this picture. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. 
and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. That's my Jesus, man. I'm not following that little scrawny dude. I'm following that guy. And you need to understand that that's who your Savior is. When Jesus says, hey, come to me, he's not saying come over here where I can't do anything about your circumstance. He's saying come over here and watch this. You know what else he says? He says, "If you, this is a, the Rick paraphrase, if you jack with me, he'll jack with you. That's what he says. Now, again, that's the paraphrase. Don't search it that way. You won't find it. <laughs> but what he does say is he says, I will contend with those who contend with you. Did you know that? He says, you have the authority to make a thousand demons flee. Don't jack with the person who knows who their Savior is. So you've got to have a, a right understanding of identity, a, a, a right understanding of you, a right view of you, and a right view of God. And then secondly, and this is so, so powerful, don't ever forget how powerful this is, relationships are key. Relationships are key, man. My pastor says that, that show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I've got a brother. I've got a brother, man, and Show me your friends and I'll show you your future so right in his life. Because I love that young man. And, and we obviously had our issues growing up. You know, we were siblings and he's my little brother. But um, that guy has such a huge heart and so much potential in him. He's got this incredible wit. Man, he's so funny. He's way funnier than I am. He's not better looking, but he is funnier. You can't have it all. You know, you don't always get what you want, you know, but you get what you need. And God gave him, I heard that somewhere. Some great theologian said that. But God has blessed him with so much, and the one thing that's held him back his whole life is he's chosen the wrong people. He's chosen to put himself around the wrong people. And what's interesting about that is it's because I don't think he knows who he really is, because if he knew that he was a prince, he'd hang out with other people who are royalty. But he hangs out with people who eat crumbs, and so he eats crumbs. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Healthy relationships are key to life change. So what do you do? How do you get some healthy relationships in your life? First of all, you need to join a small group. You need to join a small group. And I'm telling you that small groups are the reason I'm standing here today. And I don't say that lightly. Small groups are why I'm standing here today. And I'm telling you, I showed up at my first small group at Church of the Highlands five years ago. My very first small group was five years ago. And I walked into a group of people, and here's, here's a beautiful thing. They weren't, they weren't studying Romans and the Greek. They were playing board games and listening to worship music. And it changed my life. I met several of my closest friends, preached one of their weddings two weeks ago. Married one of the women I met that night. She's on the front row. Changed my life. So the moral of the story is if you're single, man, they start next week. I'm trying to help you. <laughs> but it will change your life to connect relationally with people because the Bible says that you need people who know what's going on behind the mask. You can't always wear a mask. There are times for the mask. You're not seeing everything that there is to me, but Pastor Terry knows. Because I get with Pastor Terry and I say, this is what I'm feeling. I don't feel like I got it right now. I don't feel like I got it together. And what the Bible says happens then is that I begin to get healed. See, God forgives me, but the Bible says that his people heal me. James 5, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. God will use people to bring healing to your life. And the second thing you need to do is this. And I'm telling you, this is powerful. You need to join the dream team. If you are not serving in some way that is bigger than you, doing something, and it doesn't matter what it is, God has put something in you specific to each of you to do. And here's what's beautiful about it. It's not an accident. He's not looking at you trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do with that? That's what I thought for a long time, which is a valid question. God, I don't know how you use this, you know? That's not what he was thinking at all. He said, I put it in you. I chose you to be holy and without fault before the foundation of the world is what he says about me. That's Ephesians 1. 
And because I know that, I knew that he had created me for something. He created me to be standing right here today. This is not a surprise to him. It's not a surprise about what he's going to do in your life either if you'll join the team. And that means pointing a camera. It means going and holding a baby so that somebody can come in here and hear the gospel. Whatever it is, he's wired you for it. And all I would ask you to do is take the step of jumping on the discovery course. It starts today. It's so easy. Just find out what's happening at this church and find out what your gifts say about you. We believe that design reveals destiny. If you'll find out how you were made, you'll know your destiny. And everybody in this world wants to know their purpose. In fact, psychologists have gone back and said that, yes, identity is the ultimate level of change, but there's something missing, isn't there? There's something that needs to transcend your own self. And when you begin to find out why you were made and begin to do it for an eternal purpose with other people who want to make a difference, your life will change. If you'll understand who you are through identity and get around people who are going to help you change, your life will never be the same. That's a promise. It's a promise from God, not from me. You don't need to hear this from me. Hear it from the Word of God. That's a promise. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Just in a couple of just moments, I want to pray because all of this that we've talked about is, these are promises for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are promises of abundant life for those who have taken that step to come into relationship with Jesus. And I realize that there are many in the room who God has been tugging at your heart. He's been telling you there's more to this life than you're aware of right now. And I'm telling you, today could be your day. If he's calling you, don't listen to me. Listen to him. I'm not asking you to trust me. I don't have it all figured out. I'm just telling you, he knows exactly who you are, and he loves you. So the Bible says that if you, if, if you choose him today, beautiful. But I'm telling you, if you don't, he's not going to stop pursuing you. So if God's stirring in your heart, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer, a simple prayer that just says, Jesus, I want, I want what you gave me. I want, I want to receive it. And I'm going to come into a relationship with you. In a second, I'm going to ask you to lift your hands. It's simple. The Bible says if you believe with your mouth and believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. It makes it so easy because it's not about us. It's not about what we can do or how we can get it right. It's just about his son. So if that's you that God is stirring, nobody's looking around. I just want you to lift your hands. And I'm going to, I'm going to make eye contact with you, and I'm going to pray with you. Just lift your hands right now. The Lord stir you. Amen. Amen. I see you, brother. Praise the Lord. Making the biggest decision of your life. This is where everything begins. I see you, my man. God bless you, brother. Praise the Lord. I just want you to just say this prayer with me. Say it in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. Just mean it in your heart. Say, Father, thank you. Thank you for loving me enough to pursue me all the days of my life, for loving me enough to send your son to die and pave the way for me to be in relationship with you. Father, I know I don't have it figured out, but I know that you've given me your son and that from here forward, I want to walk in relationship. So Jesus, I repent from going my own way and I turn to your way. And I proclaim that you are my Lord, that you are my Savior. I begin today to give you my life so that I give you my life and I take your life in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.